0: Thank you, Mark. One of my favorite verses in, in Scripture is in the in the garden when Jesus proclaims His name and it said they fell to the ground. Something about that name. We're going to be in Psalm 65 today. If you want to, to make your way there, Psalm 65. We're going to continue going through our core values. We've been doing some core training. Here at First Bastard. So, we're going to continue going through our, our core value series this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at authentic worship. And uh, before we get into this, I do want us to, to go to the Lord in prayer. So, if you would just please bow with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it is our great and yet sometimes overlooked privilege to worship you, to be in your house. To be welcomed into your house. Gathering with with the saints. And it's a wonderful thing, Lord. I pray that you would just open our hearts to that today. I pray that the Word of God would just run swiftly across these pews, God, and infect our hearts. Allow us to see you. See who you are. Let it change us, God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to go on into our core values series. We've looked first at biblical teaching; they're one of our core values. Prayerful dependence, and then today we're looking at authentic worship. And, and we we talked recently in a previous series on worship matters. Brother Richard preached on uh, authentic worship. Then it was it was more of what authentic worship is and, and how that takes place in, in the life of, of, the, of the believer. And, and today we're looking a little more at, at, at why we, we worship. And so today we're looking a little bit more uh, of who God is, because it's, it's in who God is that we find the, the reasons that we worship Him. Or the value and the worth that we have, that comes from an understanding of of who God is. And for us to, to really to love somebody, to truly love somebody, we've got we've got to understand who they are.'t can't, can't love somebody in a deep, genuine way that we don't really know. So So what comes into our our hearts has to first travel through, our minds and sometimes our, our heart can feel like it's a thousand miles away from our mind, but from the heart to our affections, it's, it's just a short step. When we, we, we learn who, who who God is and we can understand who He is, and that and that floods our heart. We're right there. We're right there at the place of authentic worship. So, uh, for some of you today, I, I pray that this might be the first time that that you through through your mind's eye, the Holy Spirit has just removed the veil. And that you've been able to, to see who God is, and that you're you're drawn to adoration, to to worship him, to just to to just fall on your knees in, in praise and repentance or whatever that looks like for you. Um, and then there's probably some of us here today I feel like that, and even myself, just need to be reminded of, of who God is, of his, his glory and, and and his majesty and and his His beauty and His goodness and His holiness and His righteousness and all of these things that make up the character of God. You know, when I when I was in high school, I lived in this little bitty mountain town up in northern Arkansas. And I remember when we first moved there. The way you get into this town, you you drive up this big mountain, Backbone Mountain, and then as you drive up the mountain, you can look and you can see the the little city. You can call it that below, like in the valley. You can see. The houses, you can see the lakes, you can see the streams, you can see the pastures, you can see all these things, and it is just shocking, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, but after I, I lived there, you know, and I would cross that mountain day in and, and day out, this kind of became dull to, to the beauty that's there surrounding me every day that I just take for granted, and I, I think we, we do that you know when it comes to to the way we view and, and worship and, and and even see God we compartmentalize you know we get caught up with with work and home and and parents and all these different hats that we wear and we we've got our complaints and our wants and our needs and all these things so much immediately in front of us that we forget the beauty and the majesty of of the God that we serve that is constantly constantly surrounding us every day so I pray that we would be reminded of that, we wouldn't lose sight of who God is, and certainly not take for granted the, the privilege we've been given to know Him, and to, and to celebrate Him week in and week out with our family in Christ. So let me, let me read to you the, this core value that we have as we have it as a statement of our church, that, and this is also the main idea of the sermon, and it's this, God alone is supreme in value and worth. Because He is gracious. He's all-satisfying. He is righteous and all-powerful. He is present from age to age producing a plentiful harvest. And that's not actually the the verbatim of our statement. I thought I had it, but I don't. But I think you get the gist of it. I want to read that one more time though. God alone is supreme in value and worth because He is gracious and He's all-satisfying. He is righteous, all-powerful. From age to age, He is with us. He's present, and He's producing a plentiful harvest. So as I said, I want us to be reminded today of who God is. I want you to see His value. I want you to see His worth. That it's not just a core value of the church, but it's a privilege. And I want us to build a heart of it excitement and eagerness that we get to participate in, the, in worship of God. And I want us to see what worship was, was meant to be. Not just a check mark on our Christian to-do list. Man, just an opportunity to celebrate and adore God for who He is and what He has done and for what He's, what He's still doing. I'm going to give us just a little bit of context on David who's who's written the song that we're gonna that we're going look at he's one of the more popular or more well-known probably characters of the Bible um, but but David had a had a really interesting walk with with the Lord he was anointed um, as king of Israel as a young boy as a shepherd he was called out of the field and and anointed and he sat under Saul for a while and he began to to grow in, in some power and some fame and Saul hated that so he wanted to I mean, he wanted to kill David. He tried to kill him a couple times. But David takes to the throne and he becomes king and falls in love with another man's wife. One of, one of his mighty men. One of his greatest soldiers. And to cover up his sin and his shame, he he sends Uriah off to, to the front lines of battle to make sure that he's killed. He, he impregnated his wife and trying to hide his shame. And because of what he's done, because of how he's hidden his shame and the the sin that he's brought forth, the prophet comes to him and and calls him out on that. And his child ends up being afflicted by the Lord and he died from sickness at just seven days old. And David's response has always struck me in response to to that news of his son passing. He knew it was coming, but in response, Scripture says that David went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. David, he knew the Lord well. He knew His blessing. He knew, he knew His discipline. He knew the heart of the Lord. And I'm saying, so if there's any any man who's qualified to tell us why God is worthy of our worship, that it's that it's David, and that's and that's what he does in this psalm, The way the way he lays it out. This was a song that, that would have been sang. Um, it would have probably came about at the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and it's sort of set in the, in the context of harvest. This was probably after a plentiful season, but it's on God's faithfulness and it it ties together His grace, His righteousness, His power over creation, and His delicate care that He provides for the land. And so this would have been a song that they would have sang together and developed a heart of deep gratitude. And because I love you today, I'm not going to sing it to you, but I do hope that that as we read this, that we would develop that deep spirit of gratitude. I'm reading through that this morning. So I would ask that you would stand with me um, in honor of reading God's Word. The word of the Lord reads, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance, the pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves, flocks and the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to walk through this passage. And I want to show you three reasons that we value authentic worship. So, looking at this this passage, we're gonna for this psalm, we're gonna break it down in in three sections, and we're gonna look at verses one through four first. So, when David opens up in, in the very first verse, he opens up with this this confession that God is to be the object of our praise and our prayers, and that everything we do in life follows from that understanding. Everything is an outpouring of the, of the heart that we have for who God is and for what He's done. And there, there's just entirely too much in this psalm to pull everything out, but we're going to unpack as much as we can from each of these stanzas. And in this first stanza, the, the two things that I really want to drill down into, one is, is atonement, and two is, is satisfaction. And atonement is, is a biblical word. Right, it refers to the the expiation or the canceling of our sins, and it's the atonement that that appeases God and that makes our reconciliation possible with Him. So, what's important to see in this context is that it's God who establishes that atonement. David says, "When, when my iniquities prevail against me, You atone for my sins," and iniquities do prevail. <laughs> against us that happens. But that God would be the one to initiate that is just astonishing. And and here's here's why. God is holy. He's holy and he's righteous. And we are none of those. When he when he formed us from the ground, we were we were fashioned in the holiness of God. But When we sinned in Adam, we we fell, right? We fell from that state of holiness. We became infected with sin. And our entire nature became corrupt. So that we weren't worthy to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And at that point, God could have simply washed His hands. And He would have been just in doing that. I want you to think about this. this because of our sin, this, this is the state that we are in apart from God. We are creatures of the dirt. And the only reason we can even breathe is, as the song proclaimed this morning is because it was God that put the breath into our lungs. We can't even breathe without him. But but from from birth, we take our very first breath in defiance and in rebellion to the one who made us. We were designed to to worship our Creator and to find our purpose and our our satisfaction in our Father. But because we corrupted ourselves with sin, we enter this world as as rebels. That just want absolutely nothing to do with God, unless it's the gods that we make, the ones that that we fashion in our own image. Because a, apart from God, that's that's what we do. We take the gifts that that He's given us, the things that He gives us on this earth, and we and we make those gifts our idols. You know, we like Romans, 1, we trade the truth for a lie and we worship. Creation, but not the Creator. So everything that we do that's pleasing to us are things that are displeasing to God. Look look what... I don't have to turn there. I'll read this. Genesis 6, 5-8 says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Scripture could stop right there. That could be the entirety of the Bible. And God would be just in doing that. We would have gotten exactly what we deserved. It says, but the Lord found favor. And Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it, you ever wondered about that? You ever wondered how how Noah got spared? Right? There's evil in his heart continually. He's he's a sinner just like the rest of them. Yet he found favor with the Lord. You know why God was able to spare Noah? Because God established atonement for our sins. Instead of imposing on us the, the judgment that, that we deserve, he imposes his grace on us. look back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the garden walked with God in the cool of the day they, they knew God and they and they knew what it was to be perfectly fulfilled by him, to live in close proximity to to the direct object of their love and, and affection. But under the the temptation of Satan, you know, they made a rash decision, and they chose sin over God, as many of us do. And so they instantly fell from the life they were created to live. And in that moment, when when sin took effect in their lives, they knew exactly how far they had fallen, because they knew life before. So they're they're man, they're covered in things they've never felt, emotions they've never experienced, guilt, shame, they're, they're afraid, they're terrified, they're confused. They knew that they, they were no longer what they were designed to be. And they knew they were guilty for disobeying God. And under just the crushing weight of that guilt and that fear, the only thing they could think to do was cover their nakedness, because they knew they were naked now, and Hide. The only hope they had was to hide and remain unseen from God. So they hide behind a tree. There's not a tree in this world big enough to hide you from God. But but consider how God responds. He he comes to the garden. Calls out to them. Calls them out from from their hiding place. The sin of man has already the effects of that has already rippled through time. And instead of the the wrath that they thought that they would experience, they get grace. God extends grace. He he makes a sacrifice and he atones for their sins. So he doesn't have to destroy them. Not even that, he clothed them. He clothed their nakedness with with the skins that He had made out of the sacrifice for them. And listen, there's not a person in here or who has ever walked that deserves what God did in the garden that day. We deserve separation. We deserve judgment. But what God foreshadowed with that sacrifice that He made for Adam and Eve carried out for us on a bloody cross 2,000 years ago when He poured that wrath that we deserve on His only Son to pay for the sins that, that we committed. And so I can look at you today and say, whoever believes in the Son of God will not perish but have everlasting life because God established the atonement. Because God is gracious, and we, we can say with David, when our iniquities prevail, you atone for my transgressions. Can you say that today? Have you, have you responded in faith to God's grace to be reconciled to, to the Creator? Look back at, at verse 4 and you can, and, and just notice how the grace of God completely changes our state. It says, we shall be satisfied... With the goodness of his house, the holiness of his temple. So now we no longer flee from the presence of God, but we run towards the presence of God. As these recipients of his atonement, we're invited to dwell with him. We're forever satisfied in the goodness of his house and the holiness of his temple. So he's not only God of our atonement, man, he is the God of our satisfaction. David says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. And the desire to worship is ingrained in our hearts. And apart from God, that desire can never be filled. It just comes to this empty, lost feeling. And so we make these idols out of our jobs, out of our education, out of boyfriends and girlfriends and relationships, cars, houses, boats, you you name it. But eventually you're going to come to that realization that no matter what you try to Fill that with, it's never going to be enough. You're never going to be satisfied like you thought you would be. C.S. Lewis said that idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. As as large as the world and as the universe are, they cannot satisfy the heart. Because the heart was made for God. And the void that we have is even larger than this universe, because he is larger than this universe. And only the Creator God can fill our hearts to overflowing. And here, Here's the truth. This is, this is the good news. When Christ rescues you, when He transfers you from darkness to light and brings you into the presence of the Holy God, our Father, you will finally know what it is to be satisfied. Because it's in, it's in Him only in Him that we, we find our true satisfaction. And this is, this is the God that we are here to worship. A God who is gracious, who atones for our sins, and He satisfies the longing of our souls. And He's worthy. He's worthy to receive every ounce of our praise and our worship as much as we can possibly give Him. He And He deserves it all. Every bit of it. And not not only do we value authentic worship because God is gracious and He is all-satisfying, but we we value authentic worship because God is righteous and He is all-powerful. Look at at 5-8, through it says this, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. And of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. So who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs? You make the going out of the morning and the evening shout for joy. At first glance, this, what jumps out is God's power and His might His his ability to control the strongest agencies and forces of nature. And you really just want to look at that, but David is actually dealing with a very important heart issue in this passage. And it's one that's really hard to deal with. And I didn't really want to deal with it. But it needs to be. And it's it's necessary, especially in the context of, of looking at authentic worship. so I want to I want to dig into this for a minute. David tells us up in verse two that, that God hears our prayers and then in verse five, he tells us how he answers those prayers and he says that he answers those prayers with awesome deeds. He answers us with righteous righteousness by awesome deeds. And so that that word awesome can be misunderstood at, at surface level. the way we use it is is more of like, An expression of inspiration. We see something cool, and it's awesome. You do something cool, and it's awesome. Right? It's just this kind of a fluffy word. But the Hebrew term that's used here, it carries with it this sense of dreadfulness. Or fear to be afraid of something. The the King James Version renders it this way. It says, By terrible things and righteousness wilt Thou answer us, O God of our salvation. But David says he answers us by terrible deeds, and then he goes right into his power over creation right after that. But the, the deeds that the God performs in creation aren't the deeds that he's referring to, but those deeds are a testimony that he's pointing to to show that God is righteous and the way he deals with everything. These awesome deeds are are the means God uses to bring about our salvation and sanctification. That's what he's talking about. And that his sovereignty over those forces of nature are, are, are in constant testimony that his deeds are always completely carried out in righteousness. That every work and every deed that God has ever brought to pass on the face of the earth and the heavens above has been good. They've been good. And not because they meet our standard of good. Because God is good and He's the one that's done those deeds. On this side of heaven, man, we struggle to make make sense of that. And sometimes we feel like we've got to justify God for something that He's done. Or we need God to justify Himself for something that He's he's done to us. But God's righteous. and And He never needs to justify Himself to anybody. But if you don't settle that in your heart, that God is good in every deed, you'll never be able to, to value God the way that you should. And you'll never be able to worship God the way that you should. And, and if you've wondered how it is that some people just seem like they can completely abandon their heart to God, you, you look at somebody worshiping in their hands are raised or they're crying out and you're thinking, well, what's, what's the deal? There could be a lot of issues there, but you can rest assured that person knows without a shadow of a doubt that God is good. He's good all the time. And they're able to abandon their hearts to Him. And listen, I know that I have not been through half of what some of you are going through. Some of you are walking through things that I couldn't imagine. But from the moment that God brings us to faith, he is, He's sanctifying us and He's crafting us into the image of His Son. And this is, this is what I want you to see. When we, when we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, or when we pray to be made more like Christ, or when we pray that God keeps us from sin, God answers our prayers. He hears them and He answers them. And he answers those prayers in ways that are life-giving to the Spirit. But at the same time, those answers to those prayers can come in ways that just seem to absolutely crush our flesh. Think about Job. You guys probably are familiar with the story of Job a little bit, right? Job, by God's own admission, was an upright and blameless man. He, He resisted evil. He made sacrifices on a daily basis for His family for his children. And then Satan shows up in heaven with the sons of God to present himself one day and they have this conversation. Satan, where have you been? I've been to and fro on the earth. God says, have you considered Job? There's none like him. None like him on earth. He says, well, he's only like that because you've blessed him. He knows your wealth. He knows your protection. So God removes that. And in one day, in minutes, Job loses everything. Family, wealth, businesses, livestock, all that stuff's gone and And he worships. He worships, and then Satan's back, and this conversation goes on even even more. And and he's kind of God's like I told you so. He says, "Well, you know, he's still got his health." So God says, "Go for it. Don't take his life." And then we see Job, and he's covered in sores, and he's sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping those sores with pieces of pottery. And Job goes through about 30 chapters of questioning God. Where are you at, God? What good does it do me to delight in you if this is what I get in in return? What's the point of all this? It would have been better. God, why did you even let me be born? I should have never saw the light of day. It would have been better if I would have never been born. In chapter 31, he builds what appears to be a pretty good defense. Pretty good case against God. He walks through like every situation of his life, and he's explaining, like, "See, I didn't do wrong there. See, I didn't sin there. See, I didn't do wrong there." And Elihu is there, and he's the youngest of his friends that came. And Scripture says he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Listen, listen to what Elihu is telling to Job in verses 34, 10 through 17. I'll read it to you. It says, "Therefore." Hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. You have understanding. Hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? And over in verse 37, he begins to point Job to the mighty and powerful hand of God and his righteousness. Let me read this to you. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of His voice and the rumbling that comes from His mouth. Under the whole heaven, He lets it go and His lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, His voices roar. He thunders with His majestic voice and He does not restrain the lightnings when His voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with His voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, He says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, His mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From from its chamber comes the whirlwind. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. They, the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. He didn't come to Job and say, hang in there, buddy. God never gives us more than we can handle. If He would have, He'll probably would have turned that pottery shard into a weapon. That's not what he needed to hear. He needed to be reminded of the almighty, all-powerful hand of God displayed in His wondrous works all over the universe. Listen, when, when the waves of life just come crashing down and it and we just want to drown and we feel like we're going to go under, it is that righteousness, the righteous, all-powerful hand of God that comes down and lifts us up out of the water. Settle it today and be encouraged that the same God who governs the nations, who calms the seas, who raises the mountains is the one who is in control of your situation. We are just this, this tiny little thread that God is weaving, you've probably heard this, on, on the tapestry of his glory. And from the back of that thing, man, it looks like a tangled up mess. It looks like it makes no sense at all. We think we could probably do a better one. But one day he's going to turn that thing around. and We're going to be able to see his glory. And we're going to be able to understand why he's done what he has done. And every affliction, every hurt, every sadness is going to be worth it. Amen, we're going to fall to our knees and we're going to praise Him for the work of His hands. God is righteous. And He's all-powerful. And He is in control. He's the God of our salvation. We value that. We value the authentic worship of God because He is gracious. He is all-satisfying. He is righteous and all-powerful. And then thirdly, is present. Because God is present and He provides the harvest. I'm going to try to move this a little quickly. I know we're getting pushed for time. But David spent his hillsides as a shepherd, right? Looking out over God's creation, over the hills, over over the pastures, and watching sunsets come and go. And that no doubt influenced his writing. I think that's really noticeable in this passage. I won't, I won't read that for the sake of time, but something He considered then is something we need to consider now. And it is the simple but amazing truth that God visits us. That He is with us and that he, that he cares for us. Listen what He says in 8, 3 and 4. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, how can we not be amazed that the God of the universe that spoke us into existence just takes notice of these tiny little creatures that He fashioned from the dust. And He he doesn't just visit us, but He cares for us and He provides for us. For man and beast, for righteous and unrighteous, God has provided the harvest year after year after year. I've never raised a crop. I I don't know a lot about that. But I love the way David personifies things when he writes. And I love his imagery here when he, he says, The bottomless river of God overflows through the earth, that the ground becomes soft and workable. Pastures begin to produce and overflow. The hills are filled with joy. The meadows become clothed with livestock and wildlife. The valleys get covered up in grain. David says, It's, it's as if the, the voice of all creation is singing together in praise. To God. And he says that every harvest is like the, the crown of God's blessing upon the earth year after year. Virgin commented on this passage, and I thought this was really interesting, really good. He says, As surely as manna was prepared of God for the tribes, so certainly is corn made and sent by God for our daily use. What is the difference whether we gather wheat ears or manna? And what matters if the first comes upward and the second downward? God is as much present beneath as above. And it's the greatest marvel that, that food should rise out of the dust as it should fall from the skies. How can the earth sing and shout praises to God for what He's done? And then us, we who are His children, Bought, purchased, washed in his blood, born again into a royal priesthood. How is it that we can enter his house some mornings and we can be as quiet and still as a stone marble statue? And I pray that God's word is chipping away the stone this morning. And then He's stirring your affections, giving you a heart of worship. He's gracious, he's righteous, he's all-satisfying, he's all-powerful from age to age. He has caused good things to grow. His presence has always been marked by abundance. Think about this. If he was to remove his hand for just one second, if he was to take his, his eye, his watchful eye off the universe, annihilation would just sweep through everything. Stars would fall, planets would crumble, nations would perish, but from age to age that has never happened. Even in the midst of of, of atheists, they even deny he exists. They deny the hand that made him, they deny the hand that feeds him. The Lord is still gracious, and he's always acted in righteousness, and he still visits the earth and provides the harvest. I'm going to close with this because I wouldn't have done my job today if I didn't tell you that the harvest that he's preparing here is just a foreshadow of the harvest to come. And that's the harvest that I pray each one of you will be a part of. Harvest in Christ. What Jesus says, he says, I am the door. Anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. hope you can see who God is. I hope you can see what he's done, what he's still doing, things that are to come, that he works all things for good for those that, that love him and that are called according to his purpose. Hope you can see that this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. I wish I had better words. Wish I could say more. Wish I could bring you more glory. But you're so good. Everything's been said this morning is so true. Worship is easy. You've done the work. We make it so hard. How can we not see that? Change us. Let the work be the work that you have done, and let us just worship and praise you for it. And let you work through us for your glory and for your good. I pray that in Christ. holy name.